Good morning. In today's headlines, former President Trump pleading not guilty in his Georgia election case. He has also waived his arraignment, entering the plea in a filing instead of appearing in court. We'll speak to a legal analyst on the next steps. Georgia's governor rejects pleas for a special session to remove DA Fannie Willis. Hear why the GOP governor split from other state Republicans on the issue. Tighter gun sale background checks could be coming. Learn about the new gun control measure proposed yesterday by the Biden administration. A short-term spending bill to avoid a government shutdown? Conservatives are crying foul and say it's a no-go without reform. A new survey says more than half of Americans who prefer remote or hybrid work say they're willing to find another job to keep that lifestyle. How does humidity influence our body? According to traditional Chinese medicine, there should be a balance to stay healthy. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. We made it to Friday. Today is September 1st. And it looks like now it's Trump and some other co-defendants that are uh, probably going to follow suit. Yeah, well, his former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, and then Chief of Staff Mark Meadows are expected to do the same in a few days. And we know your time is valuable, so we're going to get right into the specifics of our top news. Former President Trump pleaded not guilty in Georgia's 2020 election case yesterday. He will not appear for arraignment in person next week as scheduled and entered a plea through court filings instead. He also asked the judge to sever his case from his co-defendants who want a speedy trial. District Attorney Fannie Willis asked the judge overseeing the case last week to schedule a trial for all 19 defendants for October 23rd. Trump's attorney Stephen Sato says Willis' proposed date would not give him sufficient time to prepare his case and that forcing that date would violate Trump's constitutional rights to a fair trial and due process of law. It's the fourth time Trump has pleaded not guilty to criminal charges this year. The 2024 presidential candidate is charged with racketeering for disputing the state's 2020 presidential election results. The Fulton County judge overseeing the case has given the green light to televise all courtroom proceedings. He said in a court hearing yesterday that broadcast news media will be allowed pool cameras and that all hearings and possible trials will be broadcast on the court's YouTube channel. Neither prosecutors nor the defense appeared in court yesterday to oppose the media's requests for cameras. The ruling is subject to change and does not apply to any portions of the case that are moved to federal court. And now we're going to get some insight into Trump's not guilty plea and his decision to waive his arraignment. Our next guest weighing in on this has served as a public policy and appellate attorney and as a former law professor. Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center, joins us live. Thank you for your time today, Paul. What are the next steps Thank here you. after Trump's not guilty plea? Well, uh, as it was said, he also filed yesterday his motion to sever his case from the other defendants. And uh, to especially against uh, Ken Cheesebro and Sidney Powell, who asked to have a speedy trial for October 23rd. His attorney said, look, there's no way uh, I can uh, uh, defend Donald Trump from all these charges in just a couple months. And he also has another trial himself and a different case coming up in, in, in Florida next month as well. Uh, and also uh, he showed, uh, indicated and he attached as an exhibit this uh, document that uh, 
Fannie Willis filed saying, hey, uh, Sidney Powell and Ken Cheesebro, if you're asking for a speedy trial under our rules, you've got to not uh, rely on certain discovery rights you may otherwise have. Uh, you can't complain if, if, if we're not going to be able to give you everything uh, or some witness statements at the very end if we have it. So there's some detrimental effects if you go to speedy trial. So Trump's attorney says, yeah, we don't want to uh, uh, be subject to that as well. So I think they have a good argument here to, to sever his case. But as you said, Fannie Willis is saying, we're going to have all 19 trialed at the same time. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, thanks for helping us understand some of the differences there. Now, some say that Trump's tactics here are to delay and that legal experts say he could freeze the Georgia case if he becomes president. But at the same time, others say he couldn't pardon himself because if he's convicted, that would be a charge against a state and not the U.S. So how do we make sense of this here? Well, yeah, there's a lot of those contingencies uh, uh, down the road. Uh, first of all, we're still waiting to see whether uh, Mark Meadows is motion to transfer the case to the federal court is going to take place. There's some uh, filings that were made last night and the judge is expected will shortly. Donald Trump has 30 days from yesterday to file his motion also to transfer to the federal case. So I think he wants to see what's gonna happen uh, in the Meadows case before they file that motion. But uh, as you said, if in fact uh, later on he's, he's uh, uh, found guilty uh, in the Georgia court and he's president. Uh, he cannot uh, pardon uh, himself uh, because that's a state crime. And uh, uh, also uh, while, while he, uh, and he can stop though the proceedings if he hasn't been convicted, if he's a president because uh, there's a standing rule that you cannot uh, indict or prosecute a sitting president. So, uh, but that's down the road. I, I think uh, he'll be found innocent. And even if he's found guilty, he's got all these appeal rights to the Court of Appeals, to the Supreme Court. So this case is not going to be resolved uh, for a couple of years if he is found guilty. Yes, it's a major case here. Let's talk about his decision to waive his arraignment. Do you think it's to keep a low profile? I think it's more in terms of uh, expediency and, and avoiding the travel and the hassle and so forth. Uh, unlike in the federal courts, you have to show up in person. The state court in Georgia does give the option of just simply filing uh, a waiver notice or even appearing uh, remotely uh, and, and saying out loud you're, you're pleading not guilty. I think Trump just wanted to dispense with all of that uh, and, and not uh, you know, get involved in more time, waste of time in this matter. Right. It is an interesting decision, considering that some people thought he may be able to make use of the tape of him saying not guilty, of course. I mean, of course, his mugshots and T-shirts of his. Well, yeah, he already has the, uh, the mugshot and the T-shirt. I think he's you know, getting enough uh, favorable publicity, uh, I might say, by the mugshot. I think the not guilty uh, is not going to be anything marginally better than, than what he's already been using right now with the case. Right, several million dollars raised since that mugshot. So, Paul Kamen, our lead counsel of the National Legal and Policy Center, thank you for your time. Thank you. Glad to be here.
Georgia Governor Brian Kemp rejected pleas from state Republicans yesterday to remove District Attorney Fannie Willis. He says the state laws from, for removing prosecutors will be followed regardless of who it helps or harms politically. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says he will not call a special general assembly session to investigate Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. Some Georgia state lawmakers are calling for her removal for prosecuting former President Trump. A conviction would require a two-thirds majority vote in the state Senate. The state GOP would likely fall short of enough votes in the upper chamber. The Republican governor said Thursday his concerns with Willis's handling of the grand jury case have been well documented and that indictments in the middle of an election sow distrust and provide easy pickings for those who see a DA's actions as guided by politics. But Kemp says he has not seen any evidence that Willis's actions, or lack thereof, warrant action by the Prosecuting Attorney Oversight Commission. But that will ultimately be a decision that the commission will make. Regardless, in my mind, a special session of the General Assembly to end run around this law is not feasible and may ultimately prove to be unconstitutional. Kemp noted that he had been called before a special grand jury to testify during the investigation and stated President Biden was the rightful winner of Georgia's 16 electoral votes. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The Justice Department says its Election Threats Task Force has charged 14 cases involving threats against the election community, securing nine convictions. The task force was created in June 2021 after a sharp increase in threats against election workers. Guilty pleas were secured Thursday in two separate cases involving threats against election workers in Arizona and Georgia. They come on the heels of recent sentencings in two other cases. The DOJ says an Iowa man was sentenced in Arizona Monday to two and a half years in prison for sending threatening communications to an election official on the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors and to the then Attorney General of Arizona. And earlier this month, a Texas man was sentenced to three and a half years in prison for threats he made to an official in the Maricopa County Attorney's Office and another Maricopa County official. Coming up, the Biden administration proposes a new gun control rule. Find out what's in the measure currently in its comment period. And Floridians are getting back on their feet after Hurricane Idalia, many hoping to rebuild their homes, while on Maui, survivors see little relief nearly one month after the fires. Stay tuned for more after the break. Welcome back. The Biden administration is proposing a new gun control rule that would close the so-called gun show loophole. It would essentially classify any American who sells guns for profit as a firearms dealer and require them to do criminal background checks. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the proposed measure. The White House proposed changes to the definition of a firearms dealer in a statement Thursday. At present, individuals can sell firearms for profit without having to be a registered firearm dealer. Federal law does not require unlicensed private firearm sellers to do background checks on gun buyers. The new rule was proposed by the DOJ. It would classify gun sales under business activities, requiring sellers to have a license and run background checks. Executive branch agencies can issue rules and regulations to clarify how laws should be implemented. The proposal is in its comment period before being finalized. The rule builds on gun control measures passed last year after the Uvalde school shooting. 
The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act expanded the definition of engaging in the business of firearms dealing to cover all people who devote time, attention, and labor to dealing in firearms as a regular course of trade or business to predominantly earn a profit. And President Biden signed an executive order in March that further expanded the definition of an arms dealer. He said it was to get the country as close to universal background checks as possible without congressional action. The new proposal aims to end what the White House calls the gun show loophole or internet loophole, referring to firearms sales at gun shows or at online marketplaces by unlicensed dealers. It would have little chance of making it through a Republican-controlled House and would have needed GOP support to overcome a filibuster in the Senate. Now, the Biden administration says an individual will be assumed to be engaging in firearms sales if they create a website or make business cards to advertise a firearms business, maintain records that track the profits and losses from the sale of guns, or buy business insurance or rent space at a gun show. The new definitions will not apply to people that sell guns that don't have the aim of making money, such as selling a gun no longer needed to a family member or as a collectible for a hobby. Many Second Amendment advocates say the administration's new gun rules could essentially outlaw private firearm transfers and are likely to challenge it in court. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A potential government shutdown is in the spotlight. The White House wants Congress to pass a short-term spending bill to avoid it and ensure that government services continue. This while the key players hash out a long list of disagreements. The current funding is set to expire at the end of September. That's putting lawmakers and the White House into sprint mode to avoid a shutdown once lawmakers return from their summer breaks. Major disagreements remain. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says lawmakers will likely have to pass a short-term solution in the form of a continuing resolution. But the conservative House Freedom Caucus is balking at that. Its members say they will oppose any stopgap funding measure. That's unless it includes provisions to beef up border security, address so-called woke policies in the Department of Defense, and what they call weaponization of the Department of Justice. House Freedom Caucus Chair Scott Perry said a clean continuing resolution is, quote, the same old status quo we always do that goes into December and pressurizes every member to vote for garbage to get home for Christmas, end quote. Maui fire survivors and businesses are questioning when they can start to rebuild. Property losses are estimated at $6 billion. In addition, there are questions about the response or lack thereof. Who's to blame? As Natasha Chen discovered, residents are skeptical of what the government is telling them. It's hard. It's hard to take in, seeing all this devastation. Even as Lahaina fire survivors take stock of what's left of their historic community. Make me cry. Make me cry. Officials are trying to identify the bodies of those lost, but it is a mystery at the moment how many are still missing. Right now, they're investigating about 100 missing person reports. I'm like, oh, okay, today's going to be a good day. I'm not going to cry. You hug the first person, and that's all you want to do is cry. Kalaya Suela says her Lahaina home is still standing, but has no idea what condition it's in. She's with her family in temporary housing, not living, she says, just existing. I don't want to be angry, and I don't want to be upset, but nothing's moving. The number of dead stands at 115 a number that hasn't moved in 10 days. Active search and rescue is over as federal agencies are now working to remove hazardous materials and debris to make it safe for families to return to their neighborhoods. Most Lahaina students have to either enroll at other schools on the island or take virtual classes at least until mid-October. 
The entire survival and recovery process has surfaced long-held skepticism and resentment toward outside authority, which many locals have historically blamed for mismanaging the land and water. I directed my team to do everything we can for as long as it takes to help Maui recover, rebuild in a way that respects and honors Hawaiian traditions and cultures and the needs of the local community. We're not going to turn this into a new land grab. But who has he talked to? You know, who has he really sat down with and said, what is it going to take? Asuela questions whether this tragedy could have been prevented. Residents in the county of Maui are suing Hawaiian Electric, accusing the utility of not properly maintaining power lines that remained energized leading up to August 8th. The company says a downed power line in Lahaina seems to have sparked flames that morning, but says the cause of a fire that afternoon is still unknown. And while sirens have not previously been used for wildfires on Maui, new protocols will soon be shared. As we go forward, we need to educate the public on what do they need to do when a siren sounds. And that includes our visitor population that will be unfamiliar as well. Visitors who are currently avoiding Maui. The Hawaii Tourism Authority says they're losing $9 million each day with a steep drop in daily passenger arrivals to the island. And local businesses are laying off employees. We've had people cancel their reservations all the way through December of this year. Air Maui has laid off seven dispatchers. Its seven pilots used to fly more than two dozen trips a day. Now they take turns making one or two flights a day. While island residents want tourists to stay away from burned areas, they need people to come visit the rest of Maui. Most people who live on Maui have two jobs to sustain themselves, so they're not going to be able to survive and pay their bills and their home mortgages on unemployment insurance. It just won't cut it. The state of Hawaii says some borrowers are able to pause payments through early November and some can reduce or suspend payments for up to 12 months by working with their lenders. But interest may still accrue during this time and the payments still have to be made up in the future. Yeah, Hawaii has a big challenge ahead of them, but they do have a couple things going for them, a very resilient and resourceful populace as well as great weather. So hopefully their tourism can bounce back. Oh yeah, that's for sure. And as we have heard previously, right, a lot of them, they very rely on the locals to um, form that bond and help each other. So, yes. but also let's hope they get all the help they need from outside. Absolutely. And going into break now, the U.S. approves the first ever arms sale to Taiwan. What's the significance and impacts of heightened tensions? We have the analysis. And Moscow is holding elections in occupied regions of Ukraine to cement its power. Kyiv calls the votes illegal. Stay tuned for more. Welcome back. New assertion from a U.S. lawmaker during a trip to Taipei. He says Washington has an obligation to fulfill its backlog of arms sales to Taiwan. Congressman Rob Whitman adding that a bipartisan effort is underway to make that happen. Whitman is the vice chairman of the House Armed Services Committee and member of the House Select Committee on China. He said Taiwan is making an incredible effort at its own self-defense, such as extending conscription. But last year, Taiwan complained of delays to U.S. weapon deliveries after manufacturers turned supplies to Ukraine. 
And these comments come after the U.S. approved the first arms sales to Taiwan under a program that is usually used for sovereign states. The department added, though, that this didn't reflect a change in policy when it comes to the island's status. So to further understand the situation, we're bringing in Adam Savitt. He is the director of the China Policy Initiative at America First Policy Institute. Good morning, Adam. To start, please tell us more about the significance of this arms sales this time around. Well, listen, any arms sales, uh, successful arms sales to Taiwan, however incremental, is a positive thing. But still, this program, although it does imply uh, that the sale is made to a sovereign state, it still is under the State Department. It's not quite a, a sale. It's more of an arrangement that still is a taxpayer fund. Now, Taiwan is willing and able, it has proven so and has said so, to pay for arms. They simply want them to be shipped, as you said in your earlier uh, segment, and that is more the problem. Uh, another problem is that the 80 million, uh, which is at stake here, is a relative drop in the bucket. Let's look at the Ukraine war, putting aside the merits of that war in general, but just the fact, compare this 80 million, uh, which essentially will end up being loans, uh, to the 100 plus billion going to Ukraine, and those are grants. And um, uh, the uh, relative value to the uh, American people is a lot lower. Hmm. Well, although you call it drop in the bucket, China is not happy about it. But can you tell me more about how China perceives the message that this is sending? Sure, they're not happy about it, but they're not happy about anything that implies or implicitly or explicitly recognizes the sovereignty of Taiwan, whether that be uh, weapon cells or whether that be simple diplomatic actions such as recently the VP of Taiwan who transited the United States, and we have to use that euphemism, transited, because we can't technically recognize his presence. Um, on the way to Latin America, they, of course, raised tackles about that. Uh, also, the most uh, extreme example was, of course, last summer when uh, former Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, and the reaction there uh, was military exercises, unprecedented military exercises, uh, missiles that reached uh, the waters around Taiwan, as well as Japan. Uh, so there's no way to appease China, and of course they uh, will react this way to any sort of affront. Mm. Now let's talk about Taiwan a little bit. Why is Taiwan important to the U.S.? Well, number one, on a technical level, we are uh, required by the Taiwan Relations Act to provide Taiwan with the materials needed to defend and deter uh, the CCP. But obviously beyond that, there are huge strategic uh, implications for the United States. Number one, Taiwan sits in the first island chain, uh, which begins in northern Japan, uh, goes through their southern islands, through Taiwan, and into the Philippines. And that is the first line of defense to keep China contained, its uh, growing navy and air force, uh, contained in the seas around China. Uh, if China were to conquer Taiwan, it would have direct access to the Pacific Ocean it would have the potential to become a blue water navy, which is what the United States is, which means that it could deploy uh, anywhere uh, to oceans across the world, which of course would have very negative implications for trade and for the ability of the U.S. military to operate. Understood. Now, going back to the steps taken by the, by the U.S., in the light of also previous me measures taken and what was being said, how would um, those increasing tensions impact the relation the relationship and would in other words would this increase the risk of war i think technically no because as i mentioned uh, china is always bristling their diplomats are always um, lobbing threats and really 
the threat of war is is made more uh, likely if we are weak and if we don't bolster our allies and our own military. So I'd say weakness is what would more provoke them. The fact that um, we need uh, uh, Taiwan to have a credi credible deterrent that will deter an invasion from taking place uh, to begin with. And what we also need to do is strengthen our allies, such as Japan, uh, who is increasing their own defense budget, but we need to help them as well. Uh, we are increasing our, uh, we're, we're reviving our basing rights in the Philippines, uh, where we used to station our troops in the Cold War. Uh, Philippines is inviting our troops back. So increasing um, our presence in the Pacific, as well as bolstering and building our own Navy back, our Air Force, uh, those capabilities, that actually will decrease tensions uh, rather than bring us closer to war. Mm, understood. Very uh, interesting take on that. Thank you so much, Adam Savage. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks very much. And now we're getting to some short headlines from around the world. Local elections are underway in the parts of Ukraine that Russia claims as its own. It's seeking to cement Moscow's authority in what it calls its new territories despite the ongoing conflict. Ukrainian officials call the elections illegal. The, ex the exiled Ukrainian mayor of Mariupol says citizens are being forced to vote at gunpoint. The African Union yesterday suspended Gabon's membership one day after military officers ousted President Ali Bongo. General Brice Oligui Nagema, the coup leader and former head of the Presidential Guard, is due to be sworn in as president on Monday. The takeover ends the Bongo family dynasty's almost six decades in power in the Central African country. Russia's failed lunar mission left a 32-feet-wide crater on the moon when it crashed last month after it spun out of control as it was preparing for a soft landing on the South Pole. Luna 25 was Russia's first moon mission in 47 years. A NASA spacecraft imaged a new crater on the surface of the moon, likely the impact site of Russia's mission. Gabon, one more country in Africa's coup belt. Yes, and now the continent has over seven countries that are ruled by the military, and even now the EU is weighing sanctions on Niger. So we're going to go into break now. We have more coverage coming up. The CDC is warning Americans about a deadly wave of deaths from fake prescription drugs. And S Silicon Valley is taking a new approach to crack down on illegal sideshows by teaming up with social media. That and more after the break. It's good to have you back with us. It's a familiar story. A teen makes a bad decision, caves into peer pressure and a party, and does perhaps something that they haven't done before, something seemingly small, like taking a Xanax. But how can a teen weigh the risks without knowing that one pill could take their life? But this tragedy doesn't end there. Next, we have Entity's Daniel Monahan with a CDC report detailing an epidemic of counterfeit prescription drugs plaguing the nation. The number of people dropping dead from fake prescription pills is rocketing up, according to the CDC. The majority are young people under 35. The agency says the drugs aren't in pharmacies. People cop them off the street or get them from friends or in school. Its report provides some sobering figures. The number of overdose deaths with evidence of counterfeit pill use more than doubled in the monitored periods from 2019 to 2021 and tripled in western states. 
The fake drugs often contain fentanyl, a drug which causes tens of thousands of overdose deaths per year in the U.S., as well as illegally made downers like Valium or Xanax. In total, there were 54,000 overdose deaths with evidence of counterfeit drugs. The fake drugs are made to look like real pharmaceutical pills, so people are often clueless to the deadly poison within. The CDC's report says half the deaths were connected to counterfeit oxycodone, a synthetic opioid that triggered a drug epidemic starting in the early 2000s, and counterfeit Xanax. The DEA says about 6 in 10 fake prescription pills with fentanyl contain a potentially lethal dose. It says the pills are being mass-produced by the Sinaloa cartel and the Jalisco cartel in Mexico. It shared these cautionary words. Just one pill can kill. Never take a pill that wasn't prescribed directly to you. Never take a pill from a friend. And never take a pill bought on social media. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. In Texas, a ban on gender transition procedures for minors is taking effect. The Texas Supreme Court issued an order on it on Thursday. The state's top courts denied an emergency request to block the ban, essentially allowing the law to take effect today as planned. The law prohibits doctors from performing certain gender transition procedures on minors, including castration, mastectomy, puberty blockers, and hormone therapy. It also restricts the use of public funds for transgender procedures. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed the bill in June. A coalition of legal advocates, including the American Civil Liberties Union and the Transgender Law Center, sued to block it. More than 20 states have adopted laws to ban some transgender procedures for minors, though some of those are not yet in effect. And could Staten Island break away from the Big Apple? Growing safety concerns over the city's busing of illegal immigrants there have intensified the borough's, the borough's efforts to make a clean start. Staten Island Borough President Vito Fasola says the values of New York City are not in line with those of Staten Island. He says people feel like they are on a tugboat attached to the sinking Titanic and that many residents are frustrated over growing crime and the busing in of illegal immigrants. Fasella says such immigrants are dropped off in their residential neighborhoods and that one of the shelters is right across the street from two elementary schools, adding that the backgrounds of the newcomers are unknown. Staten Island has often flirted with the idea of going its own way. With a majority conservative Republican population, the borough is often at odds with the rest of the city. Its battle for independence faces an uphill climb. Any chance of secession depends on the approval of both the New York City Council and the state legislature. Should social media companies be morally responsible for the actions of users in their communities? A Silicon Valley mayor and law enforcement want to crack down on illegal sideshows in San Jose by teaming up with social media. Entity's David Lamb reports. We've heard of illegal sideshows taking up intersections with tires screeching, skid marks and smoke in the air. One Silicon Valley city has had enough and is asking to partner with social media companies. I absolutely think that our online platforms have a moral responsibility for, enforce, for supporting our laws and ensuring that we protect the community. That Footage from social media and the Citizen app shows clips of sideshows, often gaining many likes and reposts, leading to promotion of the activity. 
San Jose Mayor Matt Mahan said he sent a letter to tech companies asking them to talk to the police department and city staff in September. Uh, just this year, so far we responded to 184 sideshow events. Last year, we responded to over 200 uh, of those, uh, those events. The mayor's proposal, suspend accounts for 30 days if they post content with sideshow activity. If it continues, it'd be an indefinite suspension. A San Jose-born resident said that a sideshow happens here every weekend, and at one point, her son's car was stolen to be used at the sideshow. In this neighborhood, there's also an elementary school nearby. There's been an increase in the last year. She thinks the solution should be more than just social media. Actually, I think it would be more police, more um, engagement, to be honest with you, because we've had calls and sometimes they do show, sometimes they don't show. Sideshows hurt San Jose, and we all need to do our part to stop them, including the large social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Snapchat, all of whom we've reached out to. The mayor hopes to disincentivize people from engaging in illegal sideshows and says it's part of his goal for creating a safe city from every possible angle. In San Jose, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Well, it's certainly social media facilitates the, those kind of organization for those groups, certainly. Yeah, so any means necessary to bring these to an end because road safety is so important. Exactly. Yeah. Moving on to the break now. So coming up, how much was lost to Hurricane Idalia? How will it affect property insurance in Florida? We have the latest from NTD Business host Don Ma. And a new survey says over half of Americans who prefer remote or hybrid work say they're willing to find another job to keep that lifestyle. That's more that and more after the break. Welcome back. Hurricane Idalia is expected to increase insurance costs for Florida's commercial real estate. Here to discuss this is Entity Business host Don Ma. Good morning, Don. It's great to have you with us. Yeah, pleasure, Kevin. Good morning. So what kind of properties are the most at risk of seeing an increase in insurance costs? Right. Uh, so in Florida, the bank UBS expects Idalia to result in losses of anywhere around $9 billion, Kevin. This is based on preliminary estimates. And owners of apartments and other multifamily properties and commercial real estate um, developers are the most vulnerable to a rise in the cost of insurance. And Florida is hit by more hurricanes than any other state, by the way, according to government data. So that definitely doesn't help with the situation. And we can expect uh, insurance costs to keep rising year over year. And this year, Florida's commercial property insurance rates have risen somewhere around 37%. And costs have risen the most for apartments and condos because a, a lot of the times, these properties are, are made of wood and are more likely to suffer damage. Uh, insurance costs for properties like these have gone up anywhere from 30 to 70%. And and on top of that, some insurance firms have actually pulled out of Florida in recent years because of the risk of heavy losses, Kevin. Yeah, that is a fierce hurricane and there's so many claims there, of course, they're gonna drive the costs up. So if insurance costs have gone up for apartments and condos this much, would that have an impact on the price of renting these properties? 
Yeah, it definitely has contributed to rising rent costs. Uh, apartment rents have increased by over 20% on average since 2020, according to some reports. Um, so, you know, places like Miami, Tampa and Orlando are seeing even higher increases in the range of over 33% uh, from January 2020 to April 2023. Yeah, definitely renters are also affected. So anything else for us, Don? Sure, Kevin. Uh, West Coast dock workers ratified a new labor contract. The deal includes a 32% pay raise and a one-time bonus for working during the early days of COVID-19. The contract runs through July 1st, 2028, covering 29 ports from California to Washington State. Um, but other than that, uh, good news in the auto industry, it seems like. Ford Motor has made a contract offer to the United Auto Workers, promising hourly employees 15% wage increases and other benefits. Um, our hourly workers will see a pay raise from an average of less than $80,000 in 2022 to over $90,000 in the first year of the contract. And as well, just a heads up for Tesla owners. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is invest investigating Elon mode. Uh, this is a hidden feature in the autopilot software. It can reportedly disable the safety alerts drivers get to keep their hands on the steering wheel. Then NHTS is concerned that the setting encourages unsafe driving. Um, two lawsuits against Tesla's autopilot technology are expected to go to trial this fall. Um, but other than that, that's all from me this morning, Kevin. Well, those auto workers definitely work hard. I mean, they're on the assembly line. They have to be on their game. So NTD business host Don Ma, thank you. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Kevin. Elon mode, huh? I wonder if there's any other hidden Easter eggs like that. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, these the warnings are there for a reason. Exactly. Got to pay attention. Well. well all right, um, and moving on, summer vacations are coming to an end, and that means heading back to the office, or does it? Bankrate reports that more than half of Americans who prefer remote or hybrid work are willing to find another job to keep that flexibility. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on employee preferences that could usher in a new era of work. One legacy of the pandemic has been the rise and endurance of hybrid and remote work. A four-day work week is also gaining traction. Bankrate reports nearly 90% of Americans favor one of these new work trends. Uh, the fact that I'm sitting where I am is an indication of that. So for those who had the flexibility, those who had the technology and the means to work remote, uh, that's part of the world that has changed over the last several years. This interview was done via Zoom, but many Americans aren't able to do their jobs remotely. Pilots, first responders, and service industry workers need to show up in person. More than 80% of survey respondents support another option. In those situations where those individuals cannot work remote or hybrid virtually at all, uh, they might be seeking the flexibility in terms of a four-day work week. But employers have raised concerns about remote and hybrid work. There is no doubt that one of the concerns about this has been uh, right at the top of the list, Productivity. In other words, are workers more productive, less productive, or about the same if they're working remote or fully remote or hybrid? Uh, and I think the jury's still out on that. Many large companies are requiring workers to come back to the office, at least for a few days a week. 
but Bankrate's survey reveals 68% of respondents prefer hybrid and remote work, and 73% of those workers are willing to make a change to get it. Can you have the same kind of a culture as we would have had in the past when everybody was in the office all of the time? Uh, and I think this is part of the evolving landscape that we're going to have to pay a lot of attention to. Remote and hybrid work could save time and money. You don't spend as much time commuting to the uh, workplace. And in an environment as we've had here over the last month or so, rising gasoline prices, well, that adds insult to injury with respect to commuting costs. And so it's time essentially wasted. Hamrick believes these preferences are the new normal for now. But there's also going to be tremendous evolution, whether it's with workplace preferences, work preferences, the way the technology changes the nature of work as we're seeing AI, just the beginning of that. Employers may have to acquiesce if they want to retain talent. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Well, I certainly understand the appeal of that. Yeah, well, remote work does have its perks, but there's just something about a good office or on-site work environment. Yeah, well, I agree, but at the same time, if you're used to it, it's probably hard to take that away again, those perks that you have, you know? Yeah, once you get a taste of it, right? Yeah. And coming up, how does humidity influence the body? We'll explore what traditional Chinese medicine has to say about its role in healing and health when we come back. Welcome back. In traditional Chinese medicine, dampness can play a role in your daily comfort. To understand this concept, we spoke to Dr. Jin Duan Yang, a fifth-generation practitioner of traditional Chinese medicine. He explains that in, aside from body chemistry and structure, there are energetic dimensions that can impact us. Take a look. Anything in the environment energetically doesn't matter. It's the heat, the wind, the dampness, the cold and it will have impact on our body. So when we are exposed to the environment of high humidity, that means our body will be affected by the humidity. And of course, in the body, we do want to have a certain level of humidity, which is moisture that we need, so that body can be, like joints can move smoothly, the body have a moisture and for our organs, but if it's too much, it creates problems, and we call them excessive dampness. Mm -hmm. When the dampness energy can affect multiple parts of our body, for example, it can affect our digestive system and make our digestive make us having trouble with our appetite, digestions, bowel movements, so on and so forth, particularly when people suffer from diarrhea. Mm -hmm. And that's normally because either too much damp heat or damp cold uh, energy in the body. Mm -hmm. And it manifests in more joints. The joints can get swollen, get stiff, and get heavy. And uh, sometimes we call them inflammation. So biochemically, dampness can be parallel with the uh, concept of inflammation. Mm. So you mentioned joints, uh, digestion. Um, how do you know that it is dampness, though, that is causing the discomfort and not something else? Well, the dampness, just like uh, the energy in the environment, it has its own uh, properties. For example, dampness causes swollen, 
So you have swollen ankles, swollen joints, water retention, and very often when we do tongue diagnosis, the first things we see if tongue is puffy, has water retention. If, you do, if it does, then you see the, there's a uh, tooth mark uh, along the side of the, uh, of the tongue, just like edema. So that can tell you. And also the dampness cause heaviness and slowness. Also, it manifests on the top of the tongue as a coating. How do you get rid of that excess dampness? Well, environmentally, we should, of course, remove ourselves from being exposed to the dampness environment, if possible. If not, and then you have to uh, check whether you're internally vulnerable, more vulnerable to the dampness. For example, the body has ability to metabolize water and to transform dampness into energy, you know, into a proper energy. So particularly, it, particularly with the normal function of the kidney and spleen, you know, and the lung, and those three important organs transform and metabolize the water and the humidity in our body. So that's you. We need to make sure and those parts of the body function well. Let's say somebody is living in Florida, very humid weather. It's pretty humid in New York City as well right now. Are there easy or quick fixes that we um, we can adjust in our lives to get rid of that dampness? Or well, at least first balance of all, it out? Uh, yes. And um, so in China, when people live in those uh, environment area, they tend to like hot, spicy food because the hot, spicy food actually help metabolize the water and the dampness. So in Sichuan, in Hunan, in Wuhan, those area, have a high humidity in China, and people develop that kind of dietary habit. Actually, that's a self-defense, so to speak. It's involved over the time. And also people could utilize, take the opportunity to utilize some Chinese herbal remedies and herbal medicinal cuisines and, uh, um, and getting some acupuncture. Definitely good to know. and. Uh... Very interesting input about the habits of eating spicy. That's an interesting tidbit. So thank you so much, Dr. Jinwan Yang. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. This is just so relevant because it has been a pretty humid summer here. Mm, right, exactly, and that's why I asked. And at the same time, I want to point out that um, he actually also mentioned that if you turn to Chinese herbal medicine, don't do it by yourself. Ask, ask a professional to prescribe you something. Right. You Although need a it's practitioner. Natural, it still has yeah, a lot of effects on your body. Yeah. And it's so cool to learn about how the physical properties correlate to these subtle energetics. Exactly. Fascinating interview. Yeah. And one thing's for sure. If more people watch this, you can bet that dehumidifier sales are going to go up. Oh, okay. Maybe that's something to look out for. All right, that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. Shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching and have a great weekend. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.